Just before we get into this episode, we do discuss topics of domestic violence and sexual violence. So if that is difficult for you, then do not listen to this episode. We have a lot of other episodes on lighter topics um, that will be beneficial to you. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Roehampton Lawcast episode 7. Today I'm joined with Amy and our law reform lecturer and family law lecturer, Ruth. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Ruth Tweedale and I am a senior lecturer here in the law school. Um, I'm also a solicitor and before I worked at Roehampton, I worked at a charity called Rights of Women and at that charity we gave free legal advice to women on issues such as family law, uh, immigration and sexual violence. So the women that we supported um, in terms of family law tended to have experienced domestic violence because the referral pathways to our organisation would have come from organisations like Women's Aid or um, the NIA project, of which I can mention that I am the chair, and this is a domestic and sexual violence charity that is based in East London and runs East London Rape Crisis and and two uh, two sorry domestic violence shelters, and the only two in the country that accept women with substance and alcohol abuse problems. So at Rights of Women, um, we were a small charity. Um, we also, uh, we were a small charity, but we did big things. And um, so we managed, for example, to judicially review the government to get the um, regulations on legal aid changed so that uh, more women um, and all women who'd experienced domestic violence could access legal aid, as the government had introduced some. Um, gateways that let uh, sort of created um, a system where a lot of women who had experienced domestic violence didn't have the appropriate evidence. So for example, there'd been no criminal prosecution or they hadn't got a non-molestation order. Um, And uh, that's called Rights of Women, the Ministry of Justice, I think, if anyone's interested. It's also, for any of you family law students, it's in the textbook. so at Rights of Women, we would also gain anecdotal knowledge and evidence of what was going on in sort of the family law. My specialism was family law. And um, we also had the ability to then survey our, our the women that contacted us so we could get that information. We also delivered training to professionals, so domestic violence professionals, social workers, police officers, and solicitors and, and barristers as well. And, and from that, particularly with domestic violence workers, you would also get a lot of anecdotal information about what was actually happening. And you also, from that, you've got grassroots. Um, you're working at the grassroots, so you're finding out the reality of what has happened to women. Plus, it's anonymous. So women, we were trained, of course, to speak to women about domestic violence in a, in a very sensitive way but also as lawyers you have the ability to name and frame so you can say well do you know that if he's having you know anal penetration with you and you don't want to that that's rape and by categorizing like that she's then understanding that she's in an abusive situation that might support her to be able to take steps to leave and 
So we then uh, did a research project called Picking Up the Pieces, Child Contact and Domestic Violence. So we interviewed a number of women and we surveyed solicitors and barristers. So we had access to a lot of solicitors and barristers because uh, they staffed the advice service. So they were volunteers as well as obviously the actual staff. Um, so we had solicitors and barristers and volunteers who would also able to um, help us to access uh, uh, information so so we gathered information and we did research and then we used this to lobby and campaign the government the sad reality is the work we did in picking up the pieces nothing's really changed for the better so this led me to um, also of course I well I left I left rights of women and, and went into academia and I wanted to do more research and um, I wanted to do my PhD, so thanks very much to the University of Roehampton who funded my PhD, and um, I have wonderful supervisors. So it's I um, cross no what's the word interdisciplinary. So it's social sciences and it's law, and um, what I'm looking at is a radical feminist legal analysis of child arrangements, domestic violence. Going back a little bit, um, the case that you were talking about of rights and women and the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, could you unpack that a little bit for our listeners and just explain what you did in terms of legal aid and women's rights? Uh, okay, so um, 2012 there was a bill introduced called the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punish- Punishment of Offenders Act, uh, or bill and it proposed effectively a decimation of legal aid um, in family law, so the removal of legal aid for all family law, um, with exceptions around domestic violence. So also legal aid was removed from employment, housing, with certain exceptions, immigration, um, and that clearly has a massive impact on access to justice, um, because if you're not able to avail of free or affordable advice, that creates a two-tier system. So the, the, the justice system, does it only exist for people who have the money to bring cases? Well, of course, in a democracy, that's not fair. And um, so they introduced some exceptions around domestic violence, but they define domestic violence as effectively physical attacks when the, their own definition is a broad definition, which includes, of course, includes physical violence, includes psychological abuse, sexual abuse, very important. Um, it includes financial abuse and um, st- things like activities such as like harassment and stalking, as well as what's called coercive control, which is a, which is a, a system of behaviour that belittles and minimises and controls um, one partner in a relationship. So. They wanted women, in order to get legal aid, to provide evidence um, such as a non-molestation order or a um, criminal conviction. And effectively what it would have meant was even if a woman had called the police 200 times, if she'd, if she'd um, contacted you know, women's aid other organisations on a number of occasions and she... Um, and, either of these things wouldn't have allowed her to have evidence of domestic violence because the way that the, the legislation was, was drafted and it was 
also that the government were undermining their own definition of domestic violence by not including a full spectrum. So um, we then uh, were approached by the Public Law Project and the case was funded by the Law Society. So rights of women were judicially reviewing on the basis of us as a representation of our stakeholders and our clients. Um, not, not clients, sorry, our, um, the, the women that we supported. And uh, the, we gathered evidence with um, Women's Aid that showed that um, a large percentage of women weren't able to access um, legal aid even though they'd experienced domestic violence. It was also a two-year time limit. And if you understand domestic violence, you know, uh, an incident may have happened two and a half years ago, ten years ago, and it's taken this long for her to get to the point where she's able to seek help or to try and end her marriage, like, legally. Um, and we also know that domestic violence doesn't end when a relationship ends, um, but it can change, so it might go from being physical to being emotional and psychological. So um, the first we 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 uh, lost the first instance and then appealed um, and um, the Court of Appeal found in our favor uh, that they said um, there was no rational connection with the statutory purpose of ensuring victims of domestic violence had access to legal aid and the 24 month time limit was there therefore unlawful so they found that was unlawful and they also found so the challenge was with respect to the regulations about the evidence that could be introduced. So it then led to a broadening of the gateways, which have allowed many more women who've experienced domestic violence to access legal aid. And the most dangerous time for a woman is when she leaves a violent relationship, she's most at risk of death or, or homicide and um, serious sexual violence. And people think that the, the route to safety is to leave a relationship. So we know that domestic violence is fatal and in order to protect women and allow them to leave relationships safety, safely, it's really important that they have access to free or affordable legal advice. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's some good work by the Women at Rights of Women, which is a charity that's run by women for women legislation that the government tried to pull legal aid is that a financial decision does it mark a change do you think from the government or do you think it's just they didn't think too far into it when they were putting that through i think they knew very well what they were doing and i think it's about creating um a system where the people pe most vulnerable in society aren't able to access their legal rights is disempowering and disenfranchising and the more disenfranchising it is for people who are in those positions, the um, those at the top, the wealthy, will benefit financially, and also it, it leaves them even more disempowered if they can't. I mean, one thing they cut was benefit or legal advice for benefits. Yeah, no, especially when that came in, it was a bit of a blow, and honestly, it, they cut in so many departments that it affected all across the law, like not even specifics, just anyone who wanted to access 
was just immediately set everything back a couple of years. Exactly, and they, they said that, um, oh, well, there's these great organisations like the Citizens Advice Bureau and law centres, and, you know, people can go and get advice from them, but so much of their funding comes from legal aid. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot, like, within, like, months, a lot of charities closed and folded. So rights women didn't get any funding for, from legal aid, so we were okay. But a lot of other really great charities, so much, they had other funding, but a lot of their funding came from legal aid. What you then also had was advice deserts. So, you know, women in Wales, for example, were like four or five hours in some places away from a family law solicitor. Um, what also happened at the same time was the, the Family Justice Review happened and they had all these brilliant um, ideas of, you know, we're going to make the system better between when parents are separating, we're, we're going to have a better system for child contact uh, disputes and we're going to change child arrangements. Um, we're going to streamline it and we're going to have a single family court. But at the same time, the government closed 300 courts. Yeah. So, of course, it then reduced access to courts because there weren't as many. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a misguided perception that everything can go online. And in reality, I think we're all finding out now that it, it, you can't do everything online and actually human beings aren't don't like it they like social interaction yeah. and physical interaction but yeah and i think it's key like especially in cases of domestic violence for you know survivors to have that human to human contact and you can't have that over a computer screen or a phone call no and, and you, you're right in terms of um support for women fleeing domestic violence and you know a lot of holistic support that they get from from women's organizations is about group work and, and meeting other women and forming relationships and understanding that there's a commonality of experience and that they're not alone yeah. and if you're doing it via zoom <laughs> you're still gonna feel alone aren't you yeah. yeah i think it's a bit ridiculous that they have put everything online obviously it was necessary in the pandemic but to have hearings and to have trials online that just limits access to justice because what if you don't have a computer what if you don't have access to the internet what yeah. if you don't have a phone mm. you know you don't want to have this really gruesome domestic abuse trial in your living room you know that does sort of blur the lines and it just brings it home even more it's not safe and you know it also means if you if you're if you're experiencing domestic violence and you're the perpetrator will know you're in your living room at that point and could be driving around your house or telling you that they're driving around your house even if they're not and you're terrified, absolutely terrified because they've done it before and you know you then are in a, in a hearing where you're acting crazy because you're so worried that this is going to happen and then that obviously reflects badly and women victims of domestic violence very often aren't, aren't good witnesses. Mm -hmm particularly, sorry, in um, disputes over children because the children are part of them and they, they women um, prioritise, not all women, okay, but majority of mothers prioritise their child over their, themselves and their own safety. And that in the rights of women um, research we did picking up the pieces, we found that women bent over backwards to facilitate contact. So to the point, one of the women we spoke to, an Asian woman, 
um, would bring her child to the park and on one occasion he beat the living daylight out of her and she still went the next week because she thought it was so important that her child saw the father because she didn't because there's a big I find it difficult to find information on this the idea that children brought up without fathers is everyone thinks that that means that something awful is going to happen and um, but I find it difficult to find any compelling research on that obviously we know it's best if you've got the involvement of both parents but is it best if one parent is abusive situation when parents separate um i think there's a lot of myths around it so there's this idea that everyone goes to court about the kids the reality is t only 10 percent of parents go through the court process now that may be increasing because of removal of legal aid because um solicitors played a big role in trying to keep people out of court by getting them to center and be child focused and explaining that you can't just go to court so the court makes an order to confirm what's already happening because they want to keep people out of court because it's not best for children if their parents are going to court obviously mm -hmm. child welfare is paramount so so that's one thing there's also a perception that the law favors women um less than not less than one percent of applications for contact the majority of which are made by fathers are refused and the applications for contact so 10 percent of people go to court right and then we reduce that down even more because 50 percent there are um allegations of harm in that 10 percent so 50 percent of the case and the majority have domestic violence um and so when you break it down in that way and in those situations the mother will often get residence but that's because ish, the, the father's been physically usually sexually and otherwise abusive and the court has, has established that now and um, there, there has been a trend um and um justice cobb uh from the family court um issued a statement uh to judges to say that the so the children act was changed to include parental involvement and he said judges need to be clear this does not mean contact at all costs and that was in response to a piece of research by women's aid that showed that 19 children had been killed by their fathers during court sanctioned contact in the last 10 years now those are deaths that didn't need to happen those are deaths when the courts or people uh, stakeholders were aware of domestic violence and um, people think you know when women are like he might kill my children they think that they're cr that's a crazy thing to say but it's not because it does happen and um, women are also killed by their current or former partners at a rate of over two a week so the the reality of domestic violence is fatal and it's reported really badly as i'm sure we talked about when we did criminal law so for example it'll be like jealous scorned lover kills cheating wife mm. and then it talks about him and it, oh he was a great member of society he was in the army all his neighbors said they couldn't believe he did this and then at the end like a tiny little bit at the end his wife had a restraint, had a non-molestation order out on him, and there, there it is. You, you, I could, you can write it. You can say 
if, if the police wanted to deal with this, they could. Um, there's really interesting, um, there's a, a, a professor, Jane Monkton-Smith, is absolutely amazing and she does uh, this um, training on domestic violence homicide and the five steps um, and it's just fascinating and what happened in the pandemic we know is that it, from two women a week it became five women a week who were killed um, by their current or former partners and she explained that um, that the pandemic is uh, was equivalent for example to a bereavement or a job loss that then pushes a perpetrator to the next level. And it must always, you, uh, there's a perception as well that perpetrators um, lose control and that's when they kill and lash out. Uh, Jay Monkton-Smith and, and other people, uh, Evan Stark, other people who are experts in this, that's not the case. It's all about control. They decide that they're gonna kill. And they the reason why do you think that um, women are most at risk when they end a relationship? If I can't help <coughs> you, nobody can help yeah. you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they've lost, once, she, and it's when they know that she's checked out, they know they've lost control, and the ultimate act of assertion is to kill. And all too often, it's murder-suicide, so mum and the kids, and my, my anecdotal. You mentioned the point on the media painting a picture. Um, do you think they have that they have quite a large role to play for the misconceptions that m society faces in terms of homicide? Absolutely uh, complicit. Yeah, absolutely complicit. Homicide. And um, I had a um, law reform session with Professor John Lee, and he was with the, was about defund the police. But he was talking about um, how basically. Um, rape is uh, unprosecutable. It, it, there is n it may as well be legal and that's actually that's actually the radical feminist perspective is that domestic violence, rape, femicide, all of these things are connected, child murdering and um, also connected with forced marriage, pornography, trafficking, child exploitation. And all of these fall, and they're not the, the media separates them all, mm. um, but all of these fall under the umbrella of misogyny and patriarchy, and they're a method of control. So, people in Britain often look to countries, for example, like might look to Saudi Arabia and say they control their women by making them wear, you know, burqas and making them um. Uh, not allowed to drive and all these things and there are similar more, way more similarities here than there are that people would ever like to think that there are with countries like Saudi that it's just more obvious and actually what you find in countries where women are more oppressed is that they call it out and they're like oh of course we are treated equally whereas in our society there's a perception that we've we've achieved equality and if we've achieved equality, well, surely the only reason we're not running the country is because we're not good enough. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if we've achieved equality, why is it that the Supreme Court is full of men? Why is the government full of men? And it's it's not because we're not good enough. In the sort of radical feminist so makes it sound like something bad and scary. So I like 
would much prefer to call this a feminist legal analysis because my view is that feminism should be united and it should be all women united and it's about how for example i'm looking at how the law treats women as women mm. so um in terms of this idea that you've got liberal feminism and you've got black feminism but my worry with that is that you're divide we're all dividing and dividing and conquering is what the patriarchy or those in power wish to do of course that's that's part of it isn't it yeah i was going to ask you about um what do you think about law commission's report on making misogyny a hate crime i think it'll backfire because they'll make misandry a hate crime and then you won't be allowed to call out the FTARDs on like Twitter and stuff like I just think it's I think it's another one of those things where it'll there'll be a backlash so in in my uh, research and looking at the backlash against reforms to um, better deal with domestic violence in the family court backlash then comes and there's there's research on this from father's father's rights groups because they perceive um, or decide to use uh, the idea that there have been things that have benefited women that discriminate they can say that discriminates against them. Yeah, so in my mind with about the misogyny because you were talking about divide and conquer. Now the thing that came in my mind about making it um, a hate crime was that essentially we're dividing like misogyny, like as in addressing it, but as well as people thinking that they're being attacked by making it a hate crime. Oh no, I can't even say anything now. You know? That's what will happen. Yeah. Oh, I can't even say. Yeah. I'm not. How am I supposed to chat up a girl exactly. in the pub? I mean, you I, know, that's, that the guys who say that, or obviously <laughs> the guys that should probably don't <laughs> chat women up correctly in the pub. They're not the kind of guys who are like sweet and nice. Yeah. They'll be leching all over you. <laughs> I think there is something to be said about those fathers' rights groups who feel like they're hard done by yeah. because when you're always been superior equality feels like oppression mm. um, and I think that that also ties in with feminism there's I know a lot of girls that would never say they're feminists because you know to use a phrase I don't like but they call them like feminazis and yeah and, mm. and how you know you're really like anti-men and it's just definitely not a thing I think it's definitely divisive more than it is working together and it's like that I'm not like the other girls you know yeah. that's that's misogyny mm. like that's internalized and I think society has progressed past the need to have that um, it's just lending your efforts to the patriarchy and like that's not going to help you as a woman why would you do that absolutely <laughs> could not agree more amy i think that one one of the most important things as someone who had her feminist awakening properly like i would always said as a feminist but it was working at rights women and understanding speaking to women who'd been through some of the most horrendous and things and one of the one of the most one of the worst things to hear is about the humiliation and the degradation you know that a man pissing on a woman's face it brings so many emotions um that you know being pushed naked down the stairs in front of your children after being raped like the the, the thought of a woman at the bottom of the stairs naked it's oh, it's heartbreaking do you know what i mean like and when you understand that is so much part of it it's 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 it makes it so much more sinister and people just think of it's like a drunk man at the pub what i would say is important in what you what i coming from what you said amy is that women need to stick together and when you have friends who maybe say they won't be a feminist you have to understand from their perspective that that they haven't um that they they're trying they're just trying to exist and they're trying their freedom 
is limited by the fact that they want men to like them and that's because we're in a patriarchy and one of the most important things is to be nice to each other and about each other and always stick together and one thing I would say is um, women sticking together is something that <laughs> men are terrified of mm-hmm. um, but uh, but I think it's I think it's really important and, and it's interesting to hear what what your experiences of and it was the same when I was at uni you know to call yourself a feminist and this idea of feminazi um, I mean I've been called that more than once um, but it's it's so offensive but you yeah. just kind of think it's ridiculous do you know nonsense so Ruth is a really good advert for using your law degree to do good and to affect um, positive change in society. We hear a lot about you know the big money in the city and the business law and the training contracts, but there are ways to use your law degree um, in a more sort of societal sense. So Ruth, how did you, after law school, what did you do straight after law school to pursue this? So I, I studied law in Dublin, so it's a four-year degree, Trinity College and uh, then I took a year out and I worked in the Equality Commission in Belfast and I also taught A-level law. Then I took myself off to India mm-hmm. for, the, for three months, which was amazing. And then I started law school, so my LPC in Manchester. And then when I was there, I applied for training contracts and I got a training contract in a firm in North London. And um, I didn't like charging people money so the family law work that we did it was people who maybe had they were divorcing they had a house they had 50 grand equity and they're fighting over 50 grand and they're spending 10 grand each on fees and it just was not something I like to do so I wasn't charging very much money (laughs) and then uh, um, I loved family law and I was really interested I think if you're nosy like me Family law is great because you get to find out a lot about people's lives, but also if you've got that saviour complex where you want to <laughs> you want to make things better, um, it's it's also good in that sense. No, I, I am jesting, but it is uh, it is a it, it is a very interesting area of law. Then I saw this job came up for right, uh, rights of women for a legal officer, and more I looked into this organisation, I was like, am I really going to get to work here? And then also when, when you when you work there you find out about all these awesome women who've worked there before who are like judges and like politicians and it's like you're part of you're part of this um network of amazing lawyers as well. Like so many amazing lawyers have either passed through or volunteered there. And um and then uh obviously working there you are speaking to women on a day to day basis who've experienced um serious violence and rape and there's there is a there is a time limit on on how long you can do that for and so also with the research and all the work that we did that I would never have got in five years working in a law firm like I got to go to meetings with MPs I got to go to the forced marriage unit um stakeholders group all party parliamentary group um you get to be part of things and you realise, what you realise working at Rights of Women, and this is what I te- try and teach in law reform, is that we are all able to bring about change and we're, we, we can do that and it's not just about 
voting there's a lot more that you can do some people don't care and that's fine and you know a lot of people just want to make money my advice to students is get qualified as a solicitor or a barrister it's easier to get qualified as a solicitor and once you're qualified there are so many options so if you're interested in human rights if you're interested maybe in working in the un you've such an in already if you're qualified as a solicitor and if you're interested in human rights i would also if you because you're able to get that extra year of student loan, which we weren't to do, maybe do the, an LLM in human rights. We have one here, so if you plug in that. <laughs> um, but in seri- in fairness, your LPC, because that's now a master's as well, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of the women I work with also um, did the bar. They were at the bar, they got pupillage, um, which we know was very hard, and then found that they were being sent out to court to um, represent perpetrators of domestic violence and how easy it was to get them off. Mm. So they then swapped sides. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We hope that you have found that insightful and that you have discovered there is more to law than just the business world. Um, If you want to find out more, there are many resources online that you can use. Thank Mm. you, Ruth, for your time. You can also take Ruth's module in year three, it's family law. Um, make sure if you're interested, you definitely pick that. That's all to the second years um, next semester. <laughs> Thank you very much. No worries at all. Yeah. And we will see you next week on Bye. the podcast. Thank you.